Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our TruthQuest Q&A, where we look at questions in the light of Scripture to see what the Bible says so that we can know what to believe. Instead of being an I'm right quest, which so many people just want to defend what they believe, we want to know what the Bible teaches. We want to rightly divide the Word of God, remembering that it's profitable for reproof, for correction, for doctrine, that the man of God could be thoroughly equipped, lacking in nothing. If you're joining us for the first time, really glad you're here. We hope you're blessed by the time that you spend with us here today. If you're watching us on YouTube, then consider liking, subscribing, sharing, and ringing the bell so you can get all of our new content and get notified when we go live. And also, just to help us reach more people when it comes to biblical living. If you're on Facebook, then share and like. And if you're watching, if you're listening to this, on TruthQuest Podcast, and you can look that up by looking up TruthQuest Podcast with Robert Furrow, and uh, give us a review. Uh, go to iTunes and give us a review, preferably a five-star review, but whatever you want to do, uh, and that really does help, again, us get uh, the word out for Christian living, living biblical living, making sure that we are living the Word of God. So it's really good to see you guys. Good to see Daniel here uh, with me as well. Uh, thank you, Daniel. I appreciate that. And our first question is one that was left a while ago, and it's what do preterists believe about the last days? What do preterists believe about the last days? So um, most evangelical Christians are futurists. We believe that Jesus is coming back in the future. We believe that there's going to be a tribulation period. We believe that there's going to be a millennium. There are those who don't believe in that. There's post-tribulation, I mean, excuse me, there's post-millennialism and, and non-millennialism. And all of them are Orthodox Christians, by the way. Whether you are a standard preterist, we'll talk about full preterism in a minute, and that's an exception to this. Whether you're non-millennial or post-millennial or pre-millennial, all of them are considered to be uh, a genuine Christian in their faith. And that's why when we argue over last days things uh, and get really angry and upset and make it a hill to die on, it's a real mistake. Uh, the only position that the church fathers took a stand on was that Jesus Christ was going to come back and judge the living and the dead. We believe in the resurrection and the judgment of Christ, and that's in the creeds. And um, in, a preterist is a believes in the past. That's what preterism means. It means the past. So they believe that the book of Revelation was written before AD 70. There's some problems with that, but that's what they believe. And then they believe that AD 70, 66 through 70, was the siege of Jerusalem. And then at the siege of Jerusalem, uh, that all of Revelation took place, that it was fulfilled there. So they're looking to the past. Uh, a standard preterist is going to believe then that Jesus is going to come back in the future and he's going to judge mankind um, and he's going to, there's going to be a resurrection. Then there's what is called a full preterist. And that's the, that's the problem. A full preterist believes that everything took place in the past and that there's not going to be a resurrection and, and I guess just things are going to peter out and die in the end, but they do not believe uh, that Jesus is, is coming back at all, that he's going to judge, um, nor that there's going to be a resurrection in the future. And so that's a real problem and that's one that we can stand against because it goes against Christianity. It would be heresy. It would be what we would call heresy. There are, th there, there are things in the Bible that we make decisions on and we read, and, and eschatology is one of them. You can be post-trib, mid-trib, pre-wrath, and you're not a heretic. Once you start questioning 
certain fundamentals, the resurrection, the virgin birth, um, the, the Jesus resurrecting us, those things, that enters into heretical areas. Once you begin to teach it, you can be saved by works rather than by faith. That's heretical. So a preterist is not a heretic. I believe he's believing something that's wrong, but he's not a heretic unless he's a full preterist. And, and a full preterist uh, is going to, to defend their position strongly, um, but it is indeed heresy. So that's what preterists believe. They believe that, um, and, and, and they've got a lot of good explanations. They go back and they look at a lot of the things that happened in 70 AD. They tie them with what Josephus said, and they tie them into the book of Revelation. Um, but it's not. It's not as good as what they try to make it out to be. Once you go back and you look at it, it's kind of like, eh, I can see what you're saying, but I don't see the fulfillment in that. All right, so thank you for your question. I really do appreciate that. Listen, if you have a question, then write the word Q in front of your, your question or write a question mark or the word question. I'll, I'll see it, I'll bring it in. We're taking one question per person. So if you have a question, write it out. Make sure that you write it and read it a couple of times so that it makes sense. Sometimes I get questions in and I don't have enough information to cause it to really make sense. So think it out well and, um, and bring it in uh, to just write it out in the comments and we will bring it in and we will answer those questions. All right, so first of all, we have a question here from John Campbell who is joining us from Facebook. Uh, this is a big question, so I'm gonna go ahead and erase that. Let's see if we can bring this in and not have it just absolutely demolish. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll do this here, so it should be okay. John, good to see you, by the way. Hope things are going well. Um, do you have an apologetic defense for um, of hunting and or dogs. I know you have mentioned both many times in sermons. I understand that if you get carried away with anything, it can be idolatry. Many hunters or dog trainers are some of the most um, the deceit, uh, are dedicated folks I know. Uh, so I struggle with uh, crossing that line. The Bible does not speak kindly of either on the first glance. I saw an apologist book on hunting at a Christian bookstore several decades ago, but have not been able to locate it. All right, thanks, John. I appreciate that. I'm gonna go ahead and remove this because it's so it's so big. Um, uh, but yeah, no, I've, I've, I've hunted. I, I hunted, I fished. Um, I had a white lab that was a hunting dog and a good hunting dog, duck hunted with it. Um, and I don't believe there's any problem with hunting. Um, the Bible says a righteous man eats what he kills, and so I believe that just to hunt for sport is a problem. But to hunt, to be able to, to enjoy it, enjoy hunting and eating, is, um, I don't see any biblical problem for that. Um, but you're, you're right, any hobby could get carried away, any hobby could become idolatry, it can be the highest call that you've got. Um, I stopped hunting because I really didn't enjoy the kill anymore. Um, and that's the end of hunting. I started when I was in my early 30s and I probably hunted until I was in somewhere into my late 40s. Uh, I archery hunted, by the way. And, um, and like I said, really enjoyed it, enjoyed the whole experience. Um, but at some point it was like, I've done this enough and I don't need to do this anymore. I would not judge anybody along my lines. That's my conviction. I would not judge anyone along those lines. And whenever I think about it, and sometimes I do, friends of mine go out and hunt or they invite me to go hunting and I think, man, I'd love to go. Um, but then I just think, you know, I just don't want to, to kill. 
at, at this point. Uh, the first animal that I did shoot was a javelina, and um, the second animal that I shot was a deer, and um, I did feel really bad about it. It was just something. I had not done it. I had not, my, my dad had died early. I didn't have anybody take me out hunting. And um, so I don't see a biblical problem with it. I can't think of any passage that would say that you couldn't do it. Um, there's aspects of hunting which are really important. Um, being able to thin out certain herds in certain places so that they can have longevity and they don't, there's not mass, they don't die out um, in mass. So there's certain things that are very helpful to the community of the animals that are being hunted to be able to take some of them out um, through, um, through harvesting. All right. So thank you very much, John. I hope that answers your question. I appreciate you. And like I said, good to see you. We will look forward to seeing you later on. We have a question here from Matt Grossman. Matt, good to see you. Matt joins us from Facebook as well. Question follow-up from Wednesday. All right, good. Good to see you, Matt, by the way, and thank you. Um, if Jews do not do animal sacrifices, how do they atone for their sins in the minds, uh, in, uh, in their minds? How can they dismiss Leviticus 17.11? Uh, they are, uh, um, if they are practicing Jews. All right, well, let me go ahead and look that up here. Uh, Leviticus 17, Leviticus 17.11. Let me look that up and I'll go ahead and bring that on and we'll take a look at it. And I'll tell you what I know. Um, I've been to Israel over a dozen times and um, I've got good friends that are in Israel. Um, some are who are Jewish and not Christian and some who are Christian as well. So I've been able to have a lot of conversations about what Jews believe today and I've definitely had this conversation before. So let's go ahead and uh, take a look at this. I'm going to go ahead and put the scriptures up on the screen for you here. So this is Leviticus 11.7. Um, oh, that, you know what? That's not the right one. Let me go ahead and get the right one up there for you. How about that one? Um, so it says, Therefore I said to the children of Israel, No one among you shall eat blood, nor shall any stranger who dwells among you eat blood. Oh, that's 12. <laughs> Let me go ahead and uh, do the next one here. Okay, so the first uh, uh, 11 says, The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for souls. All right, so yes, I do see, I do see that as telling us that there needs to be a blood sacrifice for sin. And that Jesus is the one who made that blood sacrifice for us so that his blood atoned for our sins. And if you don't believe it anymore, remember our sacrifices stopped in 70 AD. We talked about that on Wednesday. There's no place to make those sacrifices today. They believe the ones I've talked to, all right? I can't say this is certainly everybody, but this is my own personal experience with those that I'm asking how they atone for it, is that they believe that their good works, that they do good and they'll be able to stand before God. They follow, this is the religious ones, follow the law the best that they can. There are Orthodox Jews today who will keep the Sabbath um, kind of like they did in biblical days. There are a lot of them. And then there are more secular Jews uh, who just believe that they've got to do what's good and what's right. And they may not necessarily even believe the Bible, but they believe they got to do what's right. It's, it's an error because you got to be saved by Jesus. There are some pastors who have taught that Jews get saved a different way, that they get saved, but they don't. They get saved by Jesus Christ. They gotta receive Jesus as their Messiah. And the great thing is in the future, that's going to happen. They're gonna give their lives to Christ. Uh, they are gonna, the majority of them are going to be saved. 
Romans 11 says, blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and um, then they will be saved. Then all of them will be saved. And um, uh, other passages that speak of the same thing. So it's, it's um, we're, we're looking forward to that day when God finishes the restoration that's in Ezekiel 36 through 40 of the land um, and then people in the land and then people coming back to him. That's the end of it. So we are in the middle of the restoration of Israel. Um, they have not as a, as a nation, as a bulk of people come back to him, but they will do that during the tribulation period. Uh, it, it says in Jeremiah 37 that the tribulation period is the time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob had his name changed to Israel and um, he will be saved out of it. It is a day of dis distress. Um, it is a day of Israel's trouble or, or Jacob's trouble and he will be saved out of it. Uh, Zechariah 12.10 says that God will pour out a spirit of mercy and grace on Jerusalem and they will mourn for him as one who mourns for an only son when they look upon him whom they pierced. And the fulfillment of that was when they pierced his side and God was speaking there, by the way, so when they look upon me whom they pierced, so it's God being pierced in Jerusalem and that's Jesus. It's another passage you can go to uh, as, an, as evidence for the deity of Jesus. All right, Matt, so thank you very much. They do need to come through Jesus Christ. They need to give their lives uh, to Christ through him. Uh, and um, I appreciate your question and good to see you again. Uh, just if you're joining us for the first time, really glad you're here. If you have a question, you can commit it. You can uh, give it in the comment section. Just make sure to put question or a Q or a question mark in front of it and um, then read it carefully. Make sure that it makes sense so that when I get it in, uh, that it really does make sense. All right. So um, Psych Man uh, joins us from YouTube. Good to see you, Psych Man. I uh, hope you're having a great day. In um, Does Peter's 1,000 years is a day uh, formula seem to explain Hosea 5, 1 and 2 days? Time of the Gentiles, third day, the millennium. All right, well, let's go to um, Hosea uh, 5, 1 and 2. Let's take a look at the passage you got here. So we'll, we'll pick that up, Hosea 5, 1 and 2. So let me go ahead and put the scriptures up on the screen for you. Try to get to the right place now. All right, there we go. So this is Hosea 5, 1 and 2. Hear this, O priest, take heed, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king. For yours is the judgment because you have been a snare to Mizpah and a net spread on Tabor. The revolters are deeply involved in slaughter, though I rebuke them. All right, did I go to the, did I get to the right place? Um, I'm not sure how that fits. Um, psych man, let me get back to your question here. Did I go to the right place? I, um, yeah, Hosea 5, 1, and 2. All right, well, I'm not sure how that fits. Um, and let me just go ahead and answer your question. Uh, and that is, I'm just trying to, to look at it again here. All right, so so the idea is, and this is a kind of a broader thought as well. So people believe that the earth has been, if they believe in the young earth, that it's been here for about 6,000 years. And that each, that those would represent days, just as there are weeks of days and weeks of years, that there would be weeks of, of millennium. And that the day of rest is the millennium that's coming. And maybe, uh, I've seen some arguments that are somewhat convincing. So then Peter says, a day is like 2,000 years or 2,000 years is like a day. He says this is 2 Peter. And he would write that about 4,000 years in 
and then there would be 2,000 years left before the time of rest. So kind of giving some kind of formula that God's going to return in 2,000 years. And I've heard this argued. Um, and, and when I really try to consider it, I find that I, I don't really, I, I don't really believe it. I don't really, I don't really follow through with it or follow it all that well. I think that uh, there are some questions. Uh, is it possible that that's what it means? Yes, I, I think it's possible. Um, I haven't felt confident enough in it to be able to teach it. So I've never taught it that way. But there are a lot of people who do and it is possible. I just don't feel comfortable when all the evidence is presented to be able to go, I think that's what he was saying. Uh, we, what we do know is that what he was saying, psych man, is that, is that God to God a thousand years is like a day and a day is like a thousand years and he's not slack concerning his promises and he's going to return uh, and it was going to happen quickly when he does and um, God is not slack because he desires all would be saved and all would come to the knowledge of the truth. That's God's desire and that theologically is a huge, by the way, uh, passage that helps us to understand that God wants everyone to be saved, that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord can give their lives uh, to Christ. All right. So, um, hey, if you would do me a favor, psych man, uh, look up the passage. Make sure that that's the passage that you wanted. I don't see the connection with it, um, but make sure. I'd like to look this up later on. I'll get this log and be able to look back and see you put it in there. So, if you have a passage that is, um, again, I'm looking at Hosea five, one and two, and it doesn't seem to fit, but I'd love to see what passage you've got and look at it uh, compared to that. Okay? Thanks, Psychman. I appreciate it. Have a great day. Uh, so, uh, if you're visiting here, if you're, this is your first time here, we're really glad to have you. We pray that God would really bless you. Uh, we take questions for an hour and we look at them in the light of Scripture. Uh, so, I have a question here from Z's. Z comes to us from YouTube as well. And Z's says, question, what is your belief about the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church. My belief on sacraments is that a sacrament cannot save you. And so if you believe that you are being saved because you're keeping the sacraments, then that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's never been presented in the scriptures. And so when we talk about those who are Catholic and we talk about some of them being saved because they made a commitment to Christ, there are also many who are not saved because they just go to church. It's a place where they can go and just feel like they're fulfilling religious duties. And there are certain things that are taught by the Catholic Church which aren't biblical. And this is, I guess it is a criticism, uh, but they put tradition, what's been taught traditionally, as high as scripture. There's a problem with that. Uh, Paul talked about the traditions that he had given them, but Paul, is an apostle who's bringing scripture. And so he's able to bring those traditions. And so we know that there have been a lot of things that have been taught in tradition that have been rejected in the Catholic Church. And so we don't put tradition as high as scripture. So we have to have scripture. And so there's a lot of things that we reject and some within those sacraments. And um, I wish I knew the, the seven sacraments off the top of my head. I don't. Um, we can um, look through them later on if anybody is interested in that um, or Z's, you'd like to add what those seven sacraments are and um, we can talk about that <clears throat> a little bit later on. 
But really good to, to see you, and I hope you have a great day. Uh, we have a question here from Jari. Uh, Jari, good to see you. Hope things are going well for you. Uh, Jari has a question. Uh, whose blood was in the river when Moses and Aaron turned water into blood? Um, when we read, uh, was it real or a red tide? Uh, I don't know, Jari. I don't think it was. I, Yeah, I, I don't know. I have a tendency to think that it was blood because I'm a literalist. Uh, could it have been a red tide and the Bible is using blood as a metaphor? I kind of doubt it because when... When, when you look back at Exodus and you look at the things that happened, when they talked about frogs, it was literal frogs. When they talked about flies, it was literal flies. Uh, when they talked about the death angel, it was a literal death angel. So I have a hard time looking at something where everything has been literal and turning it into a metaphor that it was some kind of a red tide. There are certainly people who believe that, but not me. I don't, I don't believe that that's the case. I believe that it was blood. Maybe just blood God created. Maybe it was no one's blood. God's a creator, right? And he can make blood and put it in there. And we are not told what blood it was. Um, but it was uh, obviously a gory sight and meant to really affect the Egyptians greatly. So thank you, Jari. I really appreciate that. And uh, we have, I'm going to find another question here. And go ahead and, and bring it in. Uh, we do this on Mondays and Saturdays. We do it from 3 to 4 on each day. Uh, we take time to answer anything that's on your mind or on your heart. And um, I appreciate you guys submitting your questions. So we have a question from Tim. Tim, nice to meet you. Good to see you. Um, says, speaking of hunting, why is it wild animals eat one another while still alive? It's so sad seeing them suffer. It is happening because we are a sinful world. How do you think God feels about this? Uh, Tim, yeah, I think it is happening because it's a fallen world. Remember the Bible says that the wolf will lay down with the lamb. And so in the millennium, that's not going to happen. And it, it is sad. And some animals will kill it first before they eat it, but there are certain animals that won't. And it is really sad and it is part of our fallen world that will one day be restored. When Jesus comes through in all of his glory and returns to Jerusalem, and then there's judgment, and there's a thousand years of peace um, that takes place, then all of it will be restored and we'll see what God intended from the very beginning. Thank you very much, Tim, for your question. I appreciate it. I hope you, um, I hope you have a great day. We have another question here from Laz Duffy. Um, all right, so let's bring you in, Laz, and um, we'll, we'll look at this question. So good to see you, Laz. Um, so we have a question here that says, what does funeral mean in the Bible? When someone passes away, does it mean you go to heaven? So I'm not quite sure what your question is. The, um, I don't know. There's nothing about the burial process that is going to get you into heaven. There is instead, it's appointed once for man to die and then comes judgment. So you've got to make things right between you and God here on earth now by receiving Jesus, uh, John 1.12. I always like to give that passage because there's people who say that saying to receive Jesus is not the gospel. 
when John 1.12 says uh, that anyone who receives him, he gives the power to become a child of God to those who believe in his name. So it's receiving and believing and then you commit your life to Christ. And that's the way that you make it into heaven. Um, I don't see anything having to do with the burial process or how they're buried or where they're buried or whether they're cremated or buried or whether they die in a fire um, or whether they're eaten by fish that would stop them from going to heaven and have a resurrected body. I believe that that would be the case either way. All right, so thank you very much, Laz. I appreciate your uh, question. We have, um, by the way, if you want to submit a second question, you can do that. We're not sure we'll be able to get to it, but once I you know, go all the way through it, if we don't get all the questions to fill the hour, uh, then we'll go back and we'll pick and take some other questions. All right, so if you have a question, just go ahead and write down question and then submit it. And um, we'll go ahead and take a look at your question. So um, looks like we've come to the end here. Um, all right. Uh, all right, so let's go ahead and bring in a question from JG. This is the first question that was submitted and somehow I missed it. Um, so um, JG says, does the authority given by Jesus in Luke 10, 19 apply against evil people who work with demons like um, Elamaz, uh, Elamaz the sorcerer in Acts 13, 8 through 11 and Pharaoh's musicians, Exodus 7. So let's go ahead and take a look at Luke 10, 19. I believe that's where Jesus says, Behold, I give you power to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing will by any means hurt you. Let me make sure that's the right one. I'm pretty sure that it is. Uh, 10, 19. Um, right, 10, 19. Luke 10, 19. Let me get there. And I'll go ahead and put it up on the screen for you. All right. Yeah, that's it. So I'm going to put it on the screen for you and then I'm going to give it to you again. Um, all right. So Jesus is here talking uh, to the 70 when they return. And they're full of joy that demons have been subject to them. And Jesus is telling them to rejoice that their name is written in, the, in heaven. That that's far greater than, than rejoicing that demons are subject to them. And so then he says this, Behold, I give you power to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will by any means hurt you. So this is a direct promise to those 70. I believe that it can be transferred to us because of other passages that talk about the evil one not being able to touch us. And if we resist the devil, that he will flee from us. Jesus gave us authority. He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go out and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to do all the things that, um, that I have told you, which is, of course is the Great Commission. So I do believe that this passage is for us as well and um, that we have been given authority over demonic spirits. Uh, so if there was an individual who um, was a sorcerer like you find in the book of Acts or a magician that's doing some kind of work by demonic power, I believe that we do have authority over them. I don't believe that they can curse you. Uh, I don't believe that you're going to be bound by anything that those that they, that they do. Um, but remember, our battle is not in facing off with someone like that. Our battle is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we've been guaranteed success. Uh, Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against you. Behold, I give you the keys to the kingdom and the gates of hell will not prevail against you. 
And so we have great authority in Christ and we want to make sure uh, that we are standing and doing the work. And we know if we are preaching the gospel, then we will see people get saved. Doesn't mean everybody's going to get saved, but we are going to see people get saved. And uh, we have great authority and great um, and great power when it comes to the preaching of the gospel and snatching people out of hell. All right. Thank you, JG. I appreciate that. Sorry, I missed it uh, earlier on. So I'm just going to kind of make my way down here, make sure I got all the questions uh, that were here. And um, I got a couple of things I want to talk about if we don't have any more questions. So, all right. Uh, I, I did miss another one. I missed one from Shelly here. I need to slow down a little bit. All right. So we have a question from Shelly. Can you explain Ephesians 5, 22 and 23? So let's go there. I think I know what it is, but let's just go ahead and see Ephesians 5, 22 and 23. All right. So yeah, this is um, marriage and it is uh, the, I'm going to bring the scriptures in here. It is uh, on marriage and um, submitting so it says, wives, submit to your own husbands as the Lord, for the husband is the head of wife, as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Um, let's just go ahead and read on a little bit more, because I think it helps. Therefore, just as Christ is subject to, or excuse me, therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so likewise let wives be to their own husbands in everything. Then it says, husbands, love your wives, but at, uh, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the word, that he might present her to himself the glorious church. So the role of the woman, and we're talking about different roles here. Um, we're talking about, you know, this is complementarianism against um, egalitarianism. Complementarianism would be that God has given men and women different roles. Uh, they are totally equal. Women may be smarter, stronger, faster, um, certainly better looking than, than men, but there's different roles to play. And the role of a husband is a role of leadership. And this has to do somewhat, it seems like it has to do somewhat with the fall when God says to the woman, your desire for so be for your husband and yet he shall rule over you. So pre-fall doesn't look like that was the case but it looks like that became the case. And there is obviously healthy complementarism and there's unhealthy complementarism. Some churches take this way too far. Some pastors take it way too far. And they are, they are aggressive towards the women, telling women that they have to do things. Obviously, God is our ultimate authority. And when someone asks us to do something that is, is against what the Bible says to do or God asks us to do, then we do not have to do it. And it's taken way too far by husbands who are like, you have to submit. And if the husband is the head of the family and he's supposed to be leading the family, then he wants to take advantage of the gifts and talents of his wife so that he can talk to her about what they're doing. They can make decisions together. Just because you're a leader doesn't mean you you make you get to make all the decisions. You want to make good decisions. You want to make right decisions. You want to um, as as a as a leader. This is one of the principles in leadership um, that it's not just hey I'm a leader and I get to rule. That's a poor leader. And if you have to say I'm the leader, um, I 
I've pastored the same church for 36 years. Never once have I stood up in front of people and said, I'm the leader, I wish you'd listen to me. And there have been many times that people have opposed things that I think are a good idea. And hey, God can bring them about. And there have been many times someone has brought up a suggestion when I'm kind of moving down a road to do something and they bring up something and I go, you know what, That's I think that's good. I think what you're saying is good. Just because there may be a role of a of a senior pastor and an assistant pastor doesn't mean that the assistant pastor might not be smarter, stronger, better looking than the senior pastor. And it, it has nothing to do with equality. It has to do with the roles that they play. And um, so when it says women submit to your husbands, then there, you have to make decisions as to if he's asking you to do something that is ungodly. But I do think that the submission to a husband, respecting his position, the Bible says in another place, wives, respect your husband. So I do believe that there, and, and I think that men want that. I think, I think that women are energized in a relationship when a man loves her, shows her that he loves her. And I think that men are energized in a relationship when they are respected. And so if a woman can respect her husband, and respect goes both ways, by the way. It just so happens that men are affected by a lack of respect. And so when a woman sees the position, can give respect, know that she's heard, know that she can trust him in his leadership as she submits to him, uh, then it can be very powerful. And for those of you who are thinking of getting married, and you're, you're marrying someone who is a Christian, hopefully, you're not marrying someone who isn't, you've got to ask yourself, can I submit to him? Is he the kind of person that I can submit to? Because if I can't, then let me find somebody I can. And is he going to be one that does his part here, which is in verse 25, husbands love your wives just as Christ so loved the church and gave himself for her. You've got to love your wife. The Bible says to live with your wife with understanding. Uh, you, you, you've got to know the nuances of the relationship between you and your wife. And if you're going to love your wife and, and as Christ died for the church, you're going to die for her, then that's far more difficult than the submission part. And men, quite frankly, haven't lived up to this. They, they dodge it. They want to find reasons why they don't. They, they want to come to reasons why I don't have to do that. I don't have to die for them because this is that, because they did this, because the woman did that. There's no qualifications here. It says this is what a husband is supposed to do. So even if your wife isn't submitting, husbands are to love their wives as Christ so loved the church. And by the way, I think if you really do love them and you die for them, just as Christ died for the church, you lay your life down, you live for them, you prioritize them, I don't think that they'll have any problems submitting to you. But oftentimes men will say, well, they're not submitting to me, so I'm not gonna, you know, I, I, I'm not gonna, you know, love her like Christ loves the church. And maybe they won't say it so clearly but I've heard it said so often. And um, it is really something that bothers me. It bothers me when men will see a problem and a difficulty or there's a, a struggle going on in a, in a marriage and a relationship and the husband finds excuses why he doesn't have to do this. I think that this is the, the, the leadership role. You have the leadership role, you're the man. You have the leadership role. If you violated some things and you need to correct them and you need to go to her and say you're sorry, you need to find out a way to be able to really uh, win her back, then you need to do that. And it's not, it's never a good thing to say, you, you, gotta, you gotta submit to me. That is always weak. 
I'm the I'm the man. I'm the leader. Well, no, you're not. You're right now. You're if you have to stomp your feet and say I'm the leader, then you're not. Uh, leaders lead, and and good leaders don't ever say anything like that. They just lead. They're doing what God's called them to do. And good leaders in the home, men do that as well. And um, they look for ways to bless their wives. They look for ways uh, to listen to them and to gain from the gifts that they have as well. All right, and uh, this has been abused by men, it's been abused by churches, and um, there is proper complementarianism that is taught within the Bible and should be followed. And then there's the abuses of it as well. All right, Shelly, so I realized that was a, kind of a short question and I went into a lot of things, um, but uh, that's what I believe about that. And let me just go back here and see um, all right, so we have another question here uh, from Andy and Tanya. So Andy and Tanya ask, our 15-year-old daughter wants to know, why did Jesus speak in parables? Thank you and say hi to your 15-year-old daughter for me. It's good to see you guys. Um, there were a couple of reasons Jesus spoke in parables and they might not be what you think. We do know that they were taught to give us spiritual truths, sometimes by contrast and sometimes by comparison. And all of the parables of Jesus teach us something. So they're a story that help us to see it. But Jesus spoke in parables because he was hiding something from those he didn't want to receive it. In other words, he clearly taught openly for a while. But then I think when the scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers committed the unpardonable sin, they rejected and rejected the Holy Spirit too long, too far, that Jesus was like, I'm speaking in parables now so that they can hear and not believe. That's what the Bible tells us, by the way. The, he, uh, Matthew and Luke tell us that, that Jesus came to that position where he said, I'm teaching these things so that they don't, they hear and they don't believe. And the disciples wondered, why do you teach, speak to us in parables and to I mean, us plainly and to the crowds in parables? And Jesus said, so seeing they will not believe, seeing they will not see and hearing they will not believe. Uh, so God wants us to be able to dive into the truth. He doesn't, he doesn't want us to just kind of casually, oh, okay, I'm gonna receive it. So we've gotta dive in and see what these things mean and do some studying and compare and contrast. And by doing so, we end up owning the scriptures. We take them on for ourselves and they become our scriptures. They become the word of God that's applied to our lives. And so that's why he spoke in parables so that we would take time to really study it. And if you're casual, if you're just kind of like, eh, you don't really care, uh, it's like the Old Testament said, you'll seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. And so I, God reveals himself not to casual seekers. He reveals to those who are all in, who give everything completely and totally to God. So Andy and Tanya, I appreciate your question. I hope that answers her question. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, we have another question here from Shelley. Um, oh, nope, Shelly asked um, that question here. Let me go ahead and make my way down here and see if there's other questions that I have missed that I can bring in here. Uh, it's good to have you guys join us today. Um, as we take time to answer questions uh, through the lens of scripture and see what God's word says. Um, thanks, Shelly, for putting your question in there twice as I'm making my way through here just to see if there's any questions uh, that I missed. Um, 
I could talk a uh, let's see. Um, yeah, so I did get sure, Shelly. Thank you very much for reposting that. I guess you reposted it three times. Um, all right, so we have a question here uh, from Searching. Question, what is the apologetic viewpoint of celebrating Halloween? Uh, I don't know that there is an apologetic viewpoint, but there's definitely different viewpoints out there as to whether or not you can celebrate Halloween. Um, so like the, the uh, Jehovah Witnesses aren't going to celebrate it at all because they think everything, Thanksgiving, Christmas, Halloween, are all pagan and they don't want anything to do with paganism. And even though when they give the presentation, it looks like you're, check, you're checking boxes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then when you dive in to what Saturnalia really was, which is what they say the celebration of Christmas is, and then you look at what we do for Christmas, you see that there's not comparisons. When you look at the Tammuz tree that they brought in in the Old Testament compared to the Christmas tree today, you see there's really not comparisons. So it looks at the surface like, boy, this is really speaking of paganism. And then when you get into it, it's not paganism at all. And what we are doing, we do not do for anything that's outside of paganism. And so this is an area that is a gray area. It's an area the Bible doesn't really speak about. Um, celebrating evil can be problematic, right? So celebrating Halloween, celebrating evil can be problematic. Uh, but I think every person gets to make their own mind up on this. That if they are allowing their kids to go out and trick or treat and dress up like a ghost or a goblin or whatever, um, that's their decision to make. And I think that Romans 14 applies, where it talks about don't argue over disputeful things. We just, just don't argue about it. One person celebrates Halloween, one person doesn't. Do it unto the Lord. What you do, do unto the Lord. And this person belongs to Jesus. So, and, and, and they, eating meat was one of those. People had really good arguments why they shouldn't eat meat because meat was butchered in temples and, and our sacrificed animals. At one point, Paul just says, don't ask. Just don't ask. And your conscience can't be stuck with it if you don't ask when you go to someone's house, was this meat sacrificed to an idol? Just don't ask, but, you know. Um, and uh, worshiping what day of the week you worship on. Again, there in Romans 14, it talks about that. So I think the same thing, if, um, if someone decides that they don't want to celebrate Christmas or celebrate holidays, I've seen people do this, um, what I've seen a lot is a rebellion by the kids as they get older to the parents who have not let them do it. Uh, I'm not saying that's one way or another. I'm just simply saying that's something to be considered. And um, so we did let our children pa uh, participate in Halloween, uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas. Uh, so um, on the surface, it looks like there is comparisons, but when you break them down, there's not. And we're not doing it in, or in any of these um, pagan kind of a ways. And so um, that's uh, the, the couple of different sides that there are on celebrating Halloween. All right. Uh, so thank you very much. I appreciate uh, your question uh, searching and good to see you. So if you um, have any questions and you can write the word question down, put a Q, a question mark, in a, uh, the word question in front of it, and we'll be able to bring it in and take a look at it. Um, let's see. 
So, um, all right, uh, let's see, what do we got here? We have uh, about 15 minutes. Um, still kind of looking for questions here. Um, all right, um, we have a question from Diana. Diana says, uh, question, well, why do some believe in the pre-wrath tribulation? Uh, thank you, Diana, I appreciate that. Um, I've never read uh, a book on the pre-wrath position, but as I understand it, they find a place between the middle of the tribulation and the great wrath. When it says the great wrath is poured out, I think it's in one of the bowls. It might be the very, yeah, I think it's one of the bowls, um, which is the seventh trumpet. Um, and that Jesus is coming back there before the real wrath is poured out. Uh, my problem with the pre-wrath position is that the whole tribulation period is God's wrath. There is great wrath in the second half of it, but the Bible didn't say you will be saved from the great wrath. It said you'll be saved from the wrath of God. And it is the Lamb of God that tears the seal, the first seal. So it's Jesus who is worthy to tear the seal. And the Antichrist comes on the scene and war comes on the scene and famine comes on the scene and, and um, inflation all of those things in the very beginning, and that's the beginning of the wrath of God. These are not nice things that happen. They are brutal things that happen. Death and Hades follows along uh, um, after war. It's, um, it's brutal. And so it all is the wrath of God. So I do not find the argument compelling that partially, you know, through the, the second half of the tribulation period is the pre-wrath position and everything else has just been kind of the world going haywire. And that's where the... Um, where the tribulation happens. I have taken time to look it up, uh, to look what their position says, uh, to see whether or not I think there's any validity in it. I've never read an entire book on the pre-wrath, but I have taken time to look at it and I just don't find the argument compelling. All right, so thank you very much. Um, you also have mid-trib that believe it happens in the, what, the abomination of desolation. You have post-trib who believe it happens afterwards. My problem with all of these positions is you would know when Jesus returns. And Jesus clearly said in Luke 12, you don't know, watch and pray, count. you don't know when I'm going to come back again, so be ready. And so you have to be ready all the time because we don't know when Jesus is coming back and those positions thwart that position, which is one of the main reasons that I am not, that I am pre-tribulation um, because of the imminent return of Jesus, the fact that he could come back at any moment. So thank you very much, Diane, for your question. I really appreciate that. Uh, let's see. We have a question here from Renee. Renee says, uh, question, can you recommend a good Bible study material? I feel like I learn more of the Word of God when I give questions to, an when I get, uh, questions to answers. Thank you, Pastor Robert. All right. So, um, good recommendations for Bible study material. Yeah, I can. Um, I think that, first of all, there's a basic handful of things that you should have. And you can find these online as well, or you can actually get the books that you would have. And I got them in my bookshelf that's back behind me. I've got a lot of these books. Um, but the first thing that I would suggest is a Strong's Concordance. And you can find them on, um, you can find them on, on, uh, on your phone. And uh, let me go here. I'm going to just go ahead and see if I can pull this up. Strong's. Yeah. So, um, you can see here, let me go ahead and put this up on the screen for you. So this is my Strong's Concordance. You can go through and each 
This is the one that I use most often. And each one of these words that are in the blue are have a corresponding word in the Greek. And then the other words that are in an off color here are they're they're put in and they don't have a corresponding word. So you can get an idea of where they kind of went word for word and and translated it. Sometimes there are two or three words to one word in the in the Greek uh, or the Hebrew. This is the Hebrew. So if I I click on separation here, it brings up Nazar. The word is what the word is. And then as you go down here, you can see it tells you what it's been translated as well. And three occurrences of crown. So this is the word um, for, um, let's see, what was it here? Yeah, well, 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 yeah, as you go down, it tells you all the occurrences. You can also click on that and you can go to all those occurrences and you can go to them and read uh, what they are there. And then you can also continue to go on and click and find words. So um, either get a concordance that you can have on, on your desk or download this one. This one's a free version. And let me go ahead and show you here what, um, what it looks like. I'm gonna get rid of it. So there it is. Um, let's see if I can bring this down. There it is. Strong's Concordance. It looks like an open Bible. That's the free one. You don't have to pay for that. So you can download it. I use it every single Bible study, okay? Um, for years, I had a big fat Strong's Concordance on my desk that I would use. The second thing that I recommend is uh, no longer, let me go ahead and get out of here and bring the Bible back up. The second thing that I recommend is a Bible handbook. And I think Haley's has a Bible handbook. There's a couple other ones, but they're usually smaller. They're, they're thick and they go by chapters in the Bible. So when you are reading something out of first Corinthians that you go, what does that mean? What does it mean that women are to braid their hair? You can go and you can look it up and see what the cultures were and, and what that means in the Bible handbook. It'll tell you things about the passage uh, that are in that, um, that, that will help you. Uh, then there's manners and customs. Not only the Bible handbook, but you should get a manners and customs. And that'll tell you the manners and customs of those days. Same way, you're gonna go through and look up by book. You know, if you're in Luke, you're gonna look up Luke and, and you can see it. So whenever I'm teaching on a passage, I'll look it up in a handbook, I'll look it up in a manners and customs. These are just like the very basics for, for your research. You're just starting to get things out of the way. Um, and, and then I would suggest reading the passage that you're studying several times and take notes on it. Read it several times, write down scriptures that come to your mind that you can look up that are connected to it, your own little cross-references. Then you can use something like Blue Letter Bible and you can go look at cross-references, you can look at commentaries, um, you can use tools there to be able to help you get further into study. Um, we have more tools available now than what we have ever had um, when we first started in 1985, of course, there was no computers. And so we had books and, and, and had them all over the desk as we were trying to study and do what we could do to make sure we understood the passages uh, that we were teaching on. So I hope that that's helpful. Uh, uh, Strong's Concordance, Haley's Handbook, any manners and customs, there are several ones of them that are out there are three um, of the essentials and it will get you started down the same road. After that, you're gonna want good commentaries. Uh, Blue Letter Bible has a lot of good commentaries that are on there, but remember commentaries are just pe are people's opinion about the Bible. So you can pick through, get the meat off the bones and toss the bones away, all right, in the commentaries. So thank you very much, Renee. Good to see you. Hope you have a great day uh, for your question. We have a question here from John P. Uh, joins us from YouTube. And uh, John says, uh, John says, 
Question. Hi, Pastor. God bless you. God bless you too, John. I appreciate that. How can one know if they are a or if they are fallen away, a fallen away follower, or they are never saved in the first place? Um, so we're talking about genuine faith. Um, remember, Peter talked about genuine faith being tested. He said that that there are trials that you are going through to test the genuineness of your faith that is far more precious than gold, even though it's refined by a fire, that your faith may be to the honor and the glory of Christ. And so if someone has fallen away, if someone is backslidden, um, if someone doesn't believe anymore, I don't know that there's any way for us to be able to judge whether or not they had genuine salvation. The, the, if they fall away and they don't return, that's a good sign that they didn't have faith, they didn't believe. Not a good sign, it's a sad sign, but it's a good sign that you can determine whether or not they really had genuine faith. Um, and maybe they really need to make a commitment to Christ if they didn't. And I would say whether or not you had genuine faith is less important to what you do in the future. That you make a real genuine commitment to Christ. That you say, Lord, I want to follow you and you receive him into your life and you live for him and you are transformed and you are born again. I believe that if you are genuinely born again, that you will be brought back into the family of God. I met the Lord when I was 13. Uh, I had a couple people in my life uh, that I respected, one a pastor and one a mentor. Both of them had affairs and it caused me to say, if this is what Christianity is about, I don't want it, which is interesting with all these scandals going on today, there are many Christians going down that same road. They're feeling the same way. Like, if this is what Christianity is about, then I don't want it. And I went down that road, but the Lord came and got me. And I had a very real, genuine um, return to Jesus experience. He came and got me. It wasn't just my idea to come back. I, and and I'll, I'll tell the story sometime, but it's extremely powerful. God took everything away from me. And then in one moment, God brought the issue that I needed to take care of and I recommitted my life to Christ in even a stronger way when I came back at 19 years old and I said, I no longer want to do what I want to do, but I want to do what you want me to do and chose at that point to begin to live for him. So I don't know that there's any way to really know if um, someone's a fallen away follower if they're never saved in the first place. I think the condition of the person is that has fallen away is a danger and we'll only know whether or not they come back and if they or, or you know we don't even know if we'll know then maybe they, they had genuine faith at that particular point in time but i do believe that some people that did de that deconstruct their faith never really had genuine faith i believe others have had genuine faith but i believe that some uh, deconstructing their faith never really had uh, genuine faith so thank you john for your question I really do appreciate that. Hope you're doing well. Hope things are going good. Uh, so we have um, another question from John Campbell. Um, so John just has a, let's go kind of a quick question about our church personally. How goes the development of a counseling center? Uh, it's going to take a while to get that all up and running, but we really see the need uh, for counseling, uh, a counseling center at the church. So it will be called Reach Counseling Center. And um, we want to hire Christian psychologists and, and biblical Christian biblical psychologists and uh, uh, biblical counselors 
to be able to meet the needs of, there's so many people that are struggling with mental issues and um, just not living right. We wanna be able to meet those needs. So thank you, John. We are um, slowly working on it. It's gonna take a time uh, to really try uh, to work all of those things out. All right. Um, all right, so let's um, bring in Christina, and this is going to be our last question for today. I think maybe we'll try to bring in another one here. Um, but uh, Christina, it's good to see you. Good to have you on here. Uh, I hope that you are blessed by the time that we look at questions through the lens of Scripture, trying to make sure that we are living biblically, that we are taking the Scriptures to be able uh, in the way that we're living. So I don't. She says I don't see anyone in the Bible or anywhere in the Bible that someone cannot be a leader because of age. Moses, Joshua, Caleb, now Pastor Sandley, Swindoll, etc. So why is the church in Melbourne? Nah, it got cut off here. Um, they only allow you so many characters on YouTube. We can get much longer questions um, there. Um, all right, so let me just try to figure out what you're saying here. Uh, there's a Calvary Chapel, I believe, it's Calvary Chapel, in Melbourne, that while the pastor was on a trip to Israel, I might get these details wrong a little bit. Um, I've read one or two articles on it a little while ago. Um, but he was away from the church for sure. And the board voted him out that he was too old. And they voted him out. Thriving church. Um, and... This will, I think that this will tell you that doesn't matter what the, um, well, it doesn't matter. There are, there, when, it, when it comes to church, the ways churches are ruled, whether they're ruled by an elders board, the congregation, by a deacon board, there's different ways they're ruled. And you hear about these kind of things all the time, things that are just not fair and just not right. And I think that's one of them here. But to deal with your question, there is no age to which you have to stop believing and following. I think as long as you are effective in ministry and hopefully you've got some people around you that will be able to tell you, no one wants to hear you anymore. You're rambling on, you're telling the same stories over and over again. You're just not, you're just not effective. You used to be effective, you're not anymore. So hopefully there will be someone who'll be willing to tell you that and hopefully um, if the Lord tarries, I'll have enough wisdom to know you know what? My, my messages just aren't what they used to be. It's time to really get out of the way and let someone else do it. I also think it's a wise thing to work in younger pastors as you get older uh, from your church who are good, solid teachers. Let them get that experience uh, when you are um, and, and maybe work out some kind of a transition. But there is none. And it's such a mistake. I, so many guys, as they get older, are so good and maybe even better than they were when they were younger. And it's a mistake. The, the pulpit is not a place to try to showcase your own talents. And so many today do that. So many want to show that they're whatever they are, whatever they're trying to really reveal that they are, that they are better than other people, that they're, that they're quick, that they're quippy, that they're hip, that they're, and all of that is a mistake. You should approach the word of God to clearly teach God's word. That's what you wanna do. You don't want people leaving saying, what a great pastor. You want people leaving saying, I love God and want to follow him. You want them saying, I want to. Tonight, we're going to be teaching on what repentance is. Um, 
I want people leaving the church going, I need to repent for this and this. Now that I know what clearly what repentance is, I need to repent for this and this. I want to be able to present this clearly in the scriptures of the Bible and not have people leave saying, Robert's such a good teacher, but that the word of God was clearly taught. And um, I think that a lot of what's taking place in pulpits today is people just showing off. People try, they're using it for their own agenda. They're not using the pulpit for what the pulpit should be done. And so the, um, the whole thing in Melbourne is a sad account. Now, I don't know all the details. So I'm, I don't even think I know this particular pastor. Know a lot of them in the Calvary Chapels in, in Florida, but I don't think I know him particularly. So I don't know all the details. So there might be something else here, um, but I don't know. I've heard that there isn't, that this guy was extremely capable and doing a great job and the church was thriving and that they booted him out. And if they did that, they're probably gonna find themselves in great trouble. Really, just because the church is not gonna, a lot of people in the church aren't gonna stand for it. And um, it is just gonna end up causing some huge tragedy. So whosever idea it was to kind of gutlessly do it while he was gone, instead of talking to him about it, letting him present his case and then voting on it. It really, it, it speaks of something that isn't, isn't right. Okay, so thank you very much for joining us. This will be our last question today. Uh, we have a service in two hours. It'll be at six o'clock. It'll be live on Facebook and on YouTube and on calvarytucson.com. Um, you can join the community there. Uh, we have a, a great online community in all of those locations and we really do appreciate them and appreciate you guys and we would love to invite you out. If you wanna come six o'clock tonight at the East Campus and join us if you're in Tucson and if not, uh, then join us live online we are going to be talking about what is repentance um, out of a great passage from Luke chapter 13. So I look forward to covering that there with you today. I also appreciate you guys uh, for all of your questions. Sorry that I missed some of them there in the beginning. I think what happens is they come in from the different platforms. They kind of come in earlier or late and sometimes I'll go buy them. and I need to go back up and check and to see what questions were submitted. So I see other questions here that were given. Uh, we'll take a look at them. Um, let's see, um, so uh, Golden Truth, I see a question here from you. Let me just bring this in really quick here. I know that I've missed a couple of your questions, so let me bring that in and this will be the last one we cover. Um, Blessings, Pastor, do the differences with the church, my friend and family, uh, it, my, my family friend is having problems tithing uh, church and tithing elsewhere, is that right? So they're having a problem with their personal church, and so they're tithing elsewhere. Um, remember, tithe is an Old Testament principle, never given again in the New Testament. We're told to give as we determine in our hearts. And I would say you should support the church you're at. If you're there for a reason, and if, you're, if they're working through it and getting ready to leave, then I understand that. And... Um, uh, so, yeah, I think you should give to the church you're at. And if you can't give to the church you're at, then you probably shouldn't be there. Find a church you can submit under. Your job in a church is not to straighten the church out. Your job is to receive from them, plug in, and be used by them. And there are plenty of good, solid churches that are out there. And I would just suggest that you find a church that you can agree with and that you can support. We should not be in a church that we can't support. 
All right. Thank you, Golden Truth. I know I missed a couple of your questions. Probably maybe for that reason, they kind of brought in from the different platforms, and um, we will continue uh, to take a look at um, to, to look for your questions. So I appreciate you guys. Love you. Hope you guys have a great weekend. Uh, find yourself in church. Study the Word of God. May God use you in a powerful way in the lives of those around you. Um, remember, no one can affect your world like you can by God. God strengthening and using you to affect the people that are around you. You may feel like you're not very effective, but God's using you as light and salt. Stand strong for Christ. All right? God bless you guys. We'll see you Wednesday night for our next uh, Truth Quest podcast Q&A. All right, so God bless you guys. By the way, uh, you can you can download the Truth Quest podcast by looking wherever you get your podcast for Truth Quest with Robert Furrow. You'll be able to download the podcast and you can listen to these while you're driving as, as well as our teachings and our hot topics um, when you're driving, which we have lots of them. All right.